Hello and welcome to the AdNote Podcast, the podcast for the Adelaide.net user group. I'm your host, David Gardner. This is the first recording from our March 2019 meeting, putting the SEC in DevSecOps with Jacob Pennington. And now, over to the presentation. Alrighty, cool. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, how's everyone doing? <laughs> Bring it. Cool. <clears throat> I um, just want to start off by saying uh, thank you to David, um, both for organising the meetup. I think that's really cool, uh, trying to build a community here, um, and thank you for letting me come and speak tonight. Um, I will apologise in advance. Uh, a little bit nervous about tonight. Uh, this is my first time performing in the Fringe, uh, but it's, <laughs> it is an honour to perform in, in this event. So uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, so I've for those got of you, empathy with you. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I've got empathy with you. I like that, an approach to writing code that lets you sleep at night. <laughs> so I'm not the only one who thinks, aha! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Funny enough, ironically, um, I lost a lot of sleep thinking about this presentation. Um, but, <laughs> but not about code, so it's alright. Um, so for those of you who haven't met before, uh, my name is Jacob Pennington. I work at Tap2 uh, in cybersecurity and software development. Um, and uh, I've been thinking a bit about uh, how to write more secure code. And I've sort of gone down this path of DevSecOps as an approach to software development that helps you do that, hopefully. Um, so what I thought I'd do is come and share with you what I've been looking at, what we do uh, as part of our DevSecOps pipeline, uh, and some sort of lessons learned. Uh, program for this evening. Uh, give a bit of background about, just a quick background about myself, how I got into this position of doing the cybersecurity software development thing. Um, a bit of uh, context for cybersecurity at the moment, trying to scare the pants off you with uh, <laughs> recent breaches and things like that. Then we're going to talk about DevSecOps as a philosophy and as a tool chain. Um, and then we're going to move into actually, okay, now we've got this idea. Um, you hear about you know Slack um, and other sort of unicorn startups using this idea. Is this something that's just in their domain or is this something that we can be doing uh, to improve our own uh, dev pipeline? And then just some parting notes. So uh, before I move forward, um, DevSecOps, uh, who's familiar with the term? Who's, uh, says passing familiarity? Is anyone doing DevOps as, um, you know, CI, CD pipelines in, in their work? Yeah? A couple at the back. Got a couple here at Tatsu. Um, cool. Uh, is anyone doing what they feel like is a pretty cool, like, DevSecOps, end-to-end, we've got some tests going through, yeah? Awesome, cool, good stuff. That what, that what I kind of thought of, uh, kind of expected. Right, cool. Um, so just a bit of background about myself. Um, don't want to go into this a bit too much, but uh, basically I finished university about two and a half, three years ago now. Uh, did some work as a full-stack dev at Tattoo. Um, but I had the, the opportunity, my, my boss came up to me and said, hey, uh, you've been doing some full st stack dev stuff. Is this what you're really interested in? Is there, is there any particular area that you want to work in and we'll try and get you work in that space? Um, which is a young person coming into, into the industry out of university is an awesome opportunity because it gives you um, some control over what you're doing. You're not just taking a job and doing it. You've got some, some sort of control over that. And I basically said to him that I really enjoy building stuff. Uh, I really enjoy software development or the challenges that has, um, but I also like to break stuff. My background in university was um, a fairly strong cybersecurity focus, so uh, did some research into IoT security, 
um, and a couple of cybersecurity topics and things like that. So I said, no, I want to do both. And theoretically, I feel like if I can do cybersecurity stuff, then that's going to help me code better because then I'll be able to write secure code. And the converse, if I want to do coding stuff, then maybe I can build some cybersecurity tooling that maybe <coughs> other people in cybersecurity don't have the, the skills to do. Um, and that brought me into doing kind of both, um, which is still what I'm doing now. So I've been doing that sort of uh, two and a half years now. Um, your eyes aren't deceiving you. Actually, this might be old version of the slide. The slide, cybersecurity side is a bit bigger. Um, I do tend to focus on that a little bit more, um, but professionally, I sort of do a bit of both. Um, and yeah, as I said, trying to figure out where that sits now. I've been sort of doing them mostly separately in my work, but I want to see what sits in the middle. Like, how can I build either cybersecurity tooling or help myself and other developers write more secure code. Uh, before we move into what I actually want to talk about tonight, um, a couple of disclaimers. I feel a little bit cheeky coming here talking here tonight, uh, but I'm not actually a .NET developer. Um, that's okay because DevSecOps is more of an approach to development that you can apply to front-end dev, back-end dev, whichever frameworks you're using. Uh, so it's, it's not too, too .NET specific. Where possible, I've tried to talk about tooling that is .NET specific. I haven't necessarily used the tooling before, but they they fill the same space as other tools do for other languages and frameworks. Um, talking about DevSecOps, uh, I'm very heavily Dev and Sec oriented, uh, as I've sort of spoken about already. There's some really cool operation stuff that you can tie into a DevSecOps pipeline as well. I do touch on a bit of stuff that kind of fits into that space, but um, yeah, any operations people here, uh, apologies if you're underrepresented. Um, and the final one is, this is just my opinion. I kind of think that this idea of putting in security testing throughout the entire dev process is a good approach to security, instead of just sort of looking at it maybe at the start and the end with a pen test or something. <clears throat> Actually building it in for every single line of code that you commit, which should be testing, uh, just seems like a good philosophy. Um, having said that, this kind of, this is from my viewpoint of the world and the kind of technologies and things we're using. So you might look at this and just be like, hey, um, we dev in a different way and maybe a different approach to security is good. So, no hey. Um, but hopefully you can get some stuff out of it. Cool. So I'd like to start my talks with a little bit of stuff about cybersecurity news. Um, hopefully to just scare the pants off of you to make you think that, yeah, security is really something we should be focusing on when we're diving stuff. Um, so some recent breaches. I've uh, got a few to talk about. Uh, Australian Parliament House. Anyone, did anyone hear about this one? Yeah, a few. Um, so we had some, the actual Australian Parliament House network was breached. Uh, some credentials were compromised and they actually got uh, into the network. Um, that was really interesting. The response to that was actually really good. Uh, from, I think it was the ACSC and DSD that responded to that. Uh, but basically, they figure out, figured out what happened, they locked it down, and then they actually shared that knowledge amongst the different government agencies and with MPs and things like that. So that was a really cool um, joint cybersecurity effort to respond to that. Uh, but at the end of the day, some nation-state actor that probably definitely wasn't China. Um, <laughs> someone put their hand up for it, like an individual person put their hand up and said it was me. And they're like... Nah, we're pretty sure it's China. Um, yeah, so right at the top of Australia, Australia got hacked, effectively. 
Um, the next one, this isn't necessarily a single data breach, but it's a collection of data breaches. Uh, Troy Hunt, if you've ever come across the Have I Been Pwned website, um, Troy Hunt basically runs this database of compromised credentials, and it's just basically a service that you can check your own credentials against. Uh, but he came across the biggest collection of credentials that he'd seen, and it seems like anyone's really seen to date. Uh, total of 2.68 billion records in this collection um, across thousands of breaches. Um, it was actually, there were so many records in this that uh, he had some issues with loading the data into the database because ints weren't big enough to represent the number of records that were in this breach. Uh, so he had to do some really cool stuff there. Once he kind of compressed this down, there were 1.16 billion unique usernames and passwords uh, and 773 unique email addresses. Uh, so at this point, when you're talking about this sheer volume of compromised credentials, you'd be pretty lucky to not have been a breach at this point. Um, and in fact, just to have a bit of database is now uh, something over 7.7 .7 billion credentials, which is now more than the population of Earth. Of course, there's going to be multiples for some people, but yeah. Uh, there's a lot of data breaches going on at the moment, and this is the biggest collection to date. Uh, and the last one I want to talk about briefly is VF Email. Um, may have never heard of them. They're basically an email service provider. Uh, the quote there kind of says it all, but basically they were breached. And rather than doing the old breach ransom kind of thing that a lot of people are doing, they just went in there and ironed absolutely everything they could on the network. And this tweet went out. This is actually a tweet. Every VM is lost. Every file server is lost. Every backup server is lost. Um, and they're basically nuked. Uh, it turns out than being running like running in a few countries, they had some other backups of bits that they could restore, but I'm pretty sure they're still trying to restore from this, uh, what, a month or two later. Um, yeah, that scares the heck out of me. The fact that you could wake up one day uh, and whatever you're working on, whatever you're building, uh, has been breached and just blown away, uh, it's pretty pretty scary in my books. What back end were they running? No. Uh, Windows, Linux? I, I think it was Linux-based, um, but I didn't, I didn't get too many details about that. <laughs> Thanks. I, I knew this update was here. I didn't want to restart my computer, specifically because I knew it was going to cause me issues. I'll <laughs> <laughs> just remind me later. Thank this you. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, so leading on from the breaches, uh, Steve Moore. Um, I want to say so straight out, I think Steve Moore is a cool guy. I don't actually dislike Steve Moore. Um, but I saw him do a talk at ASICON last year, and it scared the absolute crap out of me, actually. Um, so I don't want to be not Steve Moore. I don't want to go through what Steve Moore went through. Um, so basically, uh, um, Steve Moore was a guy who was working at a place called Anthem. Um, if anyone kind of recognizes them, they were a health provider in the US. They collected a lot of data about a lot of US citizens and very, very private data, it's confidential. Um, personally identifiable information. He was working at, uh, sorry, he was working as a junior director at the time. So like, reasonable, but not running the show by any means. Uh, and they got breached. They got breached really badly. Uh, it was like one of the worst breaches in history just because of the sheer volume of data and the kind of data that it was. And he kind of got roped into the meeting when they were doing the incident response to this and uh, kind of must have said the right words. And they effectively ended up, put, up putting this guy who had never done an incident response before as the leader of the incident response for like one of the worst breaches we've ever had. 
Um, and I won't go into the story too much, but basically this was weeks and months after the breach happened. They were working around the clock to respond to this thing, both to contain it, to see what happened, to see what was lost, to see how to respond, prevent it from happening again. Everything that goes into an incident response, this guy had to deal with, and, and a massive team, uh, for a few months after the breach happened. Uh, and it was so bad, he was so stressed out about this whole thing that he had a stroke. He's actually so stressed about having a data breach that his body just kind of gave up on him, so you gotta take time out. Um, and the weird thing was, he said that he's spoken to other people who have laid other incident responses. Uh, Target was another one. And there was a couple of others where, yeah, heart attacks and strokes are pretty commonplace, which is just kind of shows how, how awful it must be to, to have that, have that happen. Um, and reason number three, or another reason, I guess, uh, why we don't want to get breached, um, notifiable, data, notifiable data breach. Has anyone heard of this, this scheme that Australia's put in? Kind of. Uh, effectively, this is a Australian government initiative that, or law, that if you, uh, if you're a company of a certain size and you fit into a certain dem demographic and you have a breach that discloses certain data, you have to notify the Australian government about that. Um, and of course, that's going to have this whole process. It's not, you can't just have a breach and then quietly try and shove it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen. Uh, there's now strong legal action that will be taken against you if you don't, if you don't report it. So, again, another reason why I don't ever want to get that phone call to say that something's happened to something I'm building. Cool. Suitably scared? <laughs> Petrified. Petrified? Yeah. Uh, I feel the same. Alright, cool. Um, so the thing is, the reason why we're in this room is because we like to code stuff. Um, and we want to build stuff. It's, it's, whether we're doing it professionally or whether we're doing it in our own time, we just want to build stuff that works and does cool things. The reality is we have to build in all these extra things, we have to do all these extra testing to make sure what we're building is stable and secure. Uh, so yeah. I think an approach to that is DevSecOps, which is basically this idea where instead of having um, completely discrete teams that do development, security, and operations, thinking like larger organization type things, instead of having these discrete text teams, uh, you try and build up some sort of pipeline that actually uh, kind of unites their goals and, and helps them work together a bit more. A little bit fluffy at this stage, but we'll get into it. <coughs> um, so the predecessor, I guess, to DevSecOps is DevOps. Um, we had a few hands up before. Who's come across DevOps as a term? Cool. And who's using straight up DevOps pipelines in their, their work? A few? Cool. Um, so Dev DevOps is this idea that you've got this continual uh, pipeline of work that you are continuously planning, building more software, testing it, building it, deploying it, getting feedback from that and having this cycle kind of happening. Um, a lot of automated tooling, instead of doing everything kind of manually, there's a lot of automated triggers that kind of kick off this whole process. Uh, yeah, DevOps was kind of the basis of this idea. Um, and the idea, again, was to kind of unite development and operations under the same banner. And then DevSecOps just builds on top of that and says, hey, security is a thing too. Uh, let's put that into the mix. The interesting thing I think about uh, about those three different teams is they actually kind of have different goals that they're trying to achieve. Developers, all we want to do is, like, in an ideal world, we just want to build stuff and ship it. 
and just constantly ship new stuff. If, if we didn't have to worry about anything else, we just want to, hey, there's a new feature, we build it, cool, it works, let's get it out there. Um, on the flip side, operations want things to be really stable. They just want things to work all the time. When their job is, um, when they're doing their job well, hopefully everything just runs all the time and everything's dandy. Uh, and that kind of conflicts with this agility idea. Uh, and then you throw security into the mix and it's all about risk management. How do we do this but it, with minimal risk to uh, individuals and, and businesses? Um, so this idea of DevSec, DevSecOps is how do we kind of, yeah, how do we bring these, these three ideas together? Uh, so instead of having these three conflicting teams that are kind of almost butting heads with each other a little bit, how do we kind of uh, get that to work together nicely? Which sounds nice. Cool. Um, so the rest of the talk, I'm going to talk about building out a pipeline. Uh, and just to sort of visualize it a bit better, it's nice if we break out that pipeline into a set of stages. <coughs> and we've got these five stages. Um, and I'm not going to lie, these five stages were heavily inspired from a SANS resource, um, which I'll link to later. Um, but yeah, if we break it down, it just makes it a bit easier to start understand. So kicking off, right at the start of the pipeline is pre-commit. So what are the things that we do before we write a line of code or before we commit a line of code to our source, co uh, source repository? Um, and that's usually uh, based around our local environment, so the developer's laptop. We then go into the stage of, okay, now we're committing changes to the repository, we're putting that into um, the origin repository uh, and sharing it with the other developers. Uh, so that's more about the developer environment. And we can start running some tests at this stage of the pipeline that are fast, quick tests. Um, thinking like you might be using linting rules or something like that. They're really quick tests. That means that it's not going to hold up the pipeline, uh, but we can do them often. We're doing this every single time we, do, uh, we commit a piece of code. Next stage is acceptance. Uh, and this is where uh, maybe we're talking about doing uh, releases, or maybe we're talking about a sprint where we've got a couple of weeks worth of commits and pull requests that we can bind together into uh, a stage of acceptance. And you can kind of align this with UAT. If you've got a UAT environment that you're putting out to a small group of people, then that's where this kind of stage happens. And in this stage, we can start looking at things that are a bit slower, maybe some tests that take a little bit longer to run, um, and happen a bit less often, uh, just because it's not going to be holding up the developers. They can continue on with their work, with new features and bugs, uh, while this is all happening in the background. Next stage is production. So we've decided we've got a release that we want to get into production, uh, and we want to do a bunch of testing around that. So prior to building the source code, into the final release, and then actually getting that into the production environment, and then testing after the, the, it's gone into production. <coughs> Excuse me. And then the final stage is operations. So we've got code in, in production. What is the ongoing testing and scanning that we can do to make sure that things are locked down as it's running in the, in the real world? Cool. So what I want to talk about next is uh, what is our core pipeline is? What is the MVP of a DevOps toolchain? Um, so kicking off with issue and project tracking. Uh, this one feels a little bit less uh, DevOpsy, uh, but it's actually really important because uh, it's basically where we tell all of our developers the work they need to do. 
and how we manage all of that, how we manage that into sprints and, and allocating tickets to people. Um, the important thing here is this is going to be the centre of everything that comes out later on in the pipeline needs to feed back into tickets into the issue tracking so, it, so the developers know they need to fix something. So it's this kind of cycle that absolutely everything we find later on in the process gets fed back into our issue tracking. <coughs> Sorry, I got a tickle in my throat. Um, I will not note, I will, I will chuck these slides up online. Uh, for each one of these sections, I've got a bunch of demo tool or tools that you can use for each of these stages. Uh, I'm not trying to push any particular tool. These just sort of fit that particular role. There's a fairly heavy Azure AWS um, presence, just because that's what I'm kind of familiar with, but there are other tools you can use that might be better with the pipeline. Have you ever looked at Azure Spheres? Sorry? Azure Spheres? Spheres? Mm. No. What do you? Uh, well, sort of. Yeah? But it's, I guess it's a bit outside of that scenario to a certain extent because it's to do with PCB, uh, Right, okay. Yeah, cool. Okay, source control. Um, again, something you don't really think of as being a DevOps thing. This is just something that every developer needs to use to be able to collaborate on code between a team. Um, well, what it gives you is it gives you a place to store all of your source code. Uh, we can manage conflicts and things as they get pushed up there. Uh, but importantly, we can tie in Git hooks to all of the operations with uh, committing code up to, to, to the source co uh, to, to source control. Um, and you'll see a bunch of the tooling that we look into later uh, does actually is based on on Git hooks. Next is the branching policy. Um, so again, this is one's a bit contentious. Uh, depends on how you like to work, um, but there's, you kind of need to lock down how your team is actually going to work with um, build, using branches to commit code back into, this, uh, into the master tree. Um, and it, this starts to look at a few things to do with security. So if you have a production code base that's running off of master, uh, the last thing you want is for your developers to be able to commit code directly to that without bypassing the rest of the checks that all the code is going through. Um, Oh yeah, and that's the other thing. If you're going to build your pipeline on events that happen in your source code or in sorry in your uh, code repository, uh, it's really important that that people can't just trigger those processes whenever they like. It needs to go through the process. Uh, so your branching policy will say we've got a development branch. This feeds into our development environment. We can't commit stuff directly to our development branch. We have to create feature branch that then gets merged back into that. Um, and basically what it does is it puts a gate on there that says, I can't just smash up things into our development or production environments. I need to get someone else to sit down and review the source code before it goes in there. Um, yes. So the next one kind of feeds into that. It's pull requests. So again, rather than coding, committing, and merging directly into a branch, we have code requests. It gives us an opportunity for uh, people to manually review the code, see how uh, it fits to our coding conventions, how styling works, um, but it makes it easier to kind of knock away anything that really shouldn't be in our code base. Within a development team, you'd hope that no one's going to put anything malicious in there, <coughs> or anything dodgy. It might be a bit um, 
I guess, negligent, maybe. Um, maybe they've accidentally used an unsafe function or something. Uh, but if you're talking about open source software, then you know you can have people adding source code in that's that's dodgy. So if you have a pull request, you have the ability to sort of knock it back and say, no, that needs to be fixed before it's merged into our code base. Cool. Um, next one is where we're really starting to dive into the, the DevOps side of things. So continuous integration. Uh, it's this idea of constantly developing new code and feeding that through the build and test process um, to build our source code. Um, so yeah, normally what you do is you set up, once you have a pull request, someone creates a feature branch, uh, develops some code and says my, my new feature is available, they do a pull request, someone approves a pull request and says, yep, it's all dandy, it's good to go. When that is approved, then it kicks off the CI pipeline. <clears throat> oh, excuse me, sorry. Um, nice thing with this is if any of the other tests that we're going to hook into this pipeline fail, uh, then the build fails and the pull request, fa pull request fails. Uh, so the developer is going to have to go back and fix any issues that are there before it gets accepted back in. Basically, this is kind of the mechanism leading up to this is where we can start to put in tests that if any of those tests fail, then they have to be fixed before they get merged into the code base. Uh, next one is continuous delivery and continuous deployment. Um, so these two terms are kind of, I had a chat with Dan earlier, uh, they're a little bit muddy, um, seems to be contention over exactly what they mean. Uh, but effectively, if you are doing full CI uh, continuous integration, continuous deployment, it's when you, there's, it's completely automated the whole way through. You communicate a piece of code, you do a pull request, it gets tested, it gets built, and then if it passes all the tests, then it gets deployed to the production environment, completely automated. And that sort of thing can work well if you're, say, building your own piece of software that you control. Uh, but if you're building software for a client, often they want to do some acceptance, te uh, acceptance testing and things like that in the process. Uh, so what you might do is you might do continuous delivery, where we're going to back up a set of features, we're going to put that into UAT, and once that's accepted, then we're going to manually trigger and say, this particular release, we want to put into the production environment. Uh, and this basically, what it does is basically gets the, the artifacts from the build, moves into the production environment, and does any configuration that needs to do to actually serve that. Cool, so that's our base pipeline. This is basically the foundation that you kind of, you kind of need all of these bits pulled together, save for maybe a branching policy, but these are kind of the core bits that set up your pipeline, and then what we can do is build on top of this and start adding on new pieces. That's kind of clear so far? Cool. All right, cool. Now we get on to some actual security stuff. <clears throat> so automated scanning and testing. So there's a bunch of things that we can build into the pipeline that will just run when you kick off your build. Uh, Dependency management. This is probably one of my, my favorite ones at the moment. Um, basically, uh, we've seen a couple of cases in the last 12 months where people, particularly in open source projects, dependencies have had malicious code put into them, and then that malicious code is now compiled into all the applications that use them. 
Uh, so if anyone saw, this is JavaScript land, but if anyone saw the npm package event stream last year, had some malicious code, uh, basically the, the package changed hands, and then someone introduced some code that I think it was um, something to do with a particular crypto wallet um, that is pulling keys out of and sending them out. Um, and this is kind of kind of a bit of a worry because if you're writing if you're writing any software using packages that someone else has built, you're kind of trusting that, that you can't possibly do a code review on all that code. Uh, so you're kind of trusting that no one's going to do anything dodgy and and that conversely the code is actually secure. There could be vulnerabilities built into those packages. Um, so what these guys have done, Snick's really cool. Dependabot's one that I come across that uh, both Snick and Dependabot now support.net. Um, and then GitHub straight out of the box. But basically what they'll do is they'll look at a repository of uh, known vulnerabilities in packages. They'll look at your um, packages that you're using, and they'll just let you know when there's a vulnerable package in there. So the likes of Snick you can set up to either scan through your current set of packages and say, these are the ones that are vulnerable, or you might set it up to actually monitor your GitHub repo, uh, if it's a public repo. Well, I think you set up a private repo as well, but basically continuously monitor either your package list or your repo to say, let us know when there are vulnerable packages introduced. And then basically you'll kick off a build, it'll run a scan, and it will say, hey, either this package has been added and it's vulnerable, or since you last run a build, we found out that this package is vulnerable, and I've killed the build. So you need to fix this beforehand. Um, really bit nicer than that as well, you can actually get the outputs of the scans and it will show you what the issues were, uh, you might be able to figure out either whether it's low severity or maybe it's not applicable, maybe you're not using that part of that package or something. Uh, and then you can choose to either fix it directly, and I'll help you do that, or you can say, yeah, we, we're going to fix that, but not right now. It's not urgent enough to kill this build, so let us know again in a short, um, you know, in 30 days or something. Um, or you can say, no, nah, we've accepted that. We don't think that's an issue that we need to worry about, so stop, stop killing builds for this. Um, and on top of all that, it just helps you, um, they can help you just keep your packages up to date as well, um, which just in general is something that kind of lets, gets left by the wayside sometimes. So, um, yeah, I think, the, I think these tools are actually a really, really good thing. Next class I want to look at uh, is IDE plugins, which really is just kind of a subset of static analysis. And basically, similarly to how you would have a linter or something running in your IDE, that says, hey, this isn't meeting your coding conventions, get little squeaky lines. Uh, start doing that sort of stuff for security stuff as well. So if you start writing your own SQL statements that you're firing straight at the database and might say, hey, this isn't a very good way of doing this, uh, we recommend you go about writing parameterized queries and it will show, sort of show you how to do that. Um, and this is really nice for particularly bigger teams where maybe, maybe you haven't done any um, security training or anything like that. Uh, I can kind of help everyone to sort of avoid the common pitfalls of, of really basic stuff that maybe we shouldn't be using. Um, and it's a good way to educate developers as well. Because once they see this, they go, oh, this is an issue. Maybe, what, like, what's wrong with this? And then you can dive into it and go, ah, oh, I didn't actually know this was an issue, but I'll stop, stop using that from now on. Again. No. <laughs> you can't see this, but I've just got a black box in the middle of the screen. Why? 
Sorry, give me just a moment. Oh, Chrome crashed. I've been hacked. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Beautiful AI has crashed. Yeah. Shame. All right. Sorry, guys. Give me just a moment. Do a little dance. Oh, yeah, boy. This crashed hard. Does anyone have any questions so far? So I'm kind of motoring through this a little bit. What IDEs are you using at the moment? Which of those plugins do you use? Um, IDEs I write, I do mostly JavaScript development, so I'm mostly in Angular with Dev. Uh, so I'm using uh, VS Code, it's really nice. I think DevSkim uh, and PumaScan have plugins in, in VS Code. Most use DevSkim. Um, that's actually made by Microsoft, so that one works really nicely. But uh, yeah, I think I think a lot of these uh, also work for Visual Studio as well. So um, I guess was that's what most of you guys probably did with. Hey. Back. Cool. Have you enjoyed your intermission? Alright, sweet. Okay. Uh, yeah, some of these tools, I haven't used, I'm not going to lie, I haven't used all the tools that I've listed, um, but some of the tools. Kind of putting these two together. The ID plugin, plugin ones are actual ID plugin tools. Others are just straight up static code analysis. So we just look at the whole source code repository and scan through those mm. on, on Git hooks. Cool. Uh, so security scanning. Um, so has anyone has anyone had a pen test done before? Anything they built? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, so when I talk about me doing cybersecurity stuff, pen testing is mostly what I do. Uh, and this is the kind of stage where we just grab the tools that the pen testers are using and use them ourselves. Um, because that's that's what they'll be doing when they're testing our stuff. Uh, so the likes of Verb Suite, Verb Suite's a proxy tool, uh, which basically lets us intercept all the requests and see what traffic is going between the browser and the web server. And then that's why we start to play around in a web app test. Uh, but the latest version of WebBird Suite has an Enterprise Edition, which will basically let you set up a ton of API endpoints. Uh, you can set up your own 
end-to-end uh, tests of those endpoints. And you can also set, um, set up just uh, periodic fuzzing of those endpoints. So effectively, we're just trying to throw everything you can at those endpoints and see if anything strange comes back. And it will warn you to say, hey, we think you might have an SQL injection over here, or there seems to be a cross-site scripting over here, or, or what have you. Uh, Nessus is just a straight-up vulnerability scanner, so that's more looking at the infrastructure layer. So if you're running your own on-premise servers, then that kind of scanning can be really good. If you're running stuff in the cloud, that stuff tends to be pretty patched. Uh, I wouldn't worry about that too much there. Um, and same with OWASP and ZAP. A lot of people are just building uh, CI, oh, sorry, they're building tools that basically will um, build this into your pipeline. So security tool, let's build it into our uh, DevSecOps pipeline. <clears throat> cool. So V2, we've now added on a few extra little things, um, all, all mostly security scanning stuff. And you can start to see that each line of code that goes into production has kind of gone through all these different tests before it actually gets there. And you can kind of see how this, this is where the philosophy sits is if every line of code is going through those tests, then it's less likely that something's going to get to the end that's nasty. So again, there, V2 is done. Deployment environments. <coughs> cool, so... Um, Excuse me? Sure. Why do you do security and security checks and scanning after production? Sorry, yeah? Uh, security scanning at the end? Why do you do it after the production? Uh, I mean, you can do security scanning without. This is one of those ones. There's a couple in here that sort of can sit into a, a couple of categories. The reason why I put that one right down that end is uh, we can do continuous scanning of the production environment just to make sure that nothing's slipped through to the keeper and, and nothing's made to that point. Um, yeah, ideally, we want to keep as much as possible down this end so we get to it before we get to production, but it's still nice to see what's actually in production and scan that. Essentially, a black box testing. Yes. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, theoretically, I mean, you could do that against other environments. If you've got like a dev or UAD environment, you could do the same sort of thing, and that way you can bring it to before you've actually released something into production. Cool, infrastructure as code. Uh, so there's a bunch of tools that you can use to actually provision cloud resources uh, as a code base. So you can say, build me this thing, configure it in this way in our environment. Uh, and the nice thing about if you can actually build that in code is it's going to be the exact same every single time you spin up that infrastructure. So while we may know that we can go into Azure and we can create an app service and we can flick all the little switches on the, that hard in our environment, all it takes is for someone to be doing the old Friday deploy and all they want to do is go out for beers and they miss one of the toggles. Uh, so if we build that out as a code base, it means we're going to do it consistently. It also means it's source controlled, so we can update it over time, or we can track how things have changed over time. There's also tools you can use to then look at your cloud infrastructure and make sure it is configured correctly. So even if you're provisioning things automatically and it's configured exactly how you like, it doesn't mean someone can't log into the AWS console and, oh, we need to open up this port on our firewall for whatever reason, uh, and uh, you want to be able to see that sort of thing is happening. So. Um, making your provisioning as a code base and then testing the actual uh, configuration as a code base. 
<coughs> another thing is as well, you can actually, those versions can match as your software grows as well. As well. So you potentially, after a change, you could roll back and then provision a new environment based on an older software version that might have had a, a slightly different config. <coughs> I actually also saw there are some linting tools you can get for this that do linting of the code base that ends up building your infrastructure and can say, hey, uh, you know, there's a typo here or something like that. Which is kind of cool. Cool. Secret manager. Um, you'd be surprised how many times in a pen test I find hard-coded credentials. It's just the easiest way to get credentials into your code base is to just put a string in there, commit it to your source control, and away you go. Um, and I guess it's really easy to say that, hey, the only people that have access to our private repo, maybe they have access to credentials any anyway. Um, but as, as David was going through last week, you can actually pull apart uh, a binary, an executable. And if you haven't done any code, code obfuscation, then they're sitting right there. I've seen that a couple of times. Oddly enough, I've seen it a few times in, in web applications as well, where there's hard-coded credentials in the client, which is, which is madness. Um, yeah, these kind of uh, these these key management systems. Typically, if you're if you're running in a cloud environment, it's just easiest to use the key management system that goes with that environment. So if you're in your Microsoft stack, use Azure Key Vault. Uh, but it basically gives you a place that you can securely store your keys uh, and then securely access those. Uh, either at build time or in runtime. Um, uh, and it also gives you a way to, a single spot that you can go back and change that, hey, we've had a developer leave, they left and they were a bit disgruntled, maybe you want to go check change our production keys because they had access to those. Go in, change them in the key vault, you're all done in one spot. <clears throat> we're also looking at the moment, um, we're playing around with building a script that actually does this automatically. What happens if we have an instant response saying, let's change our keys? Uh, I'm a little bit dubious about that one because changing production keys at the flick of a switch sounds a little bit scary to me, but I think there's something there and being able to just really quickly respond to an incident. Cool, configuration mining. So, um, Finon's actually been in the, in the dashboards of, of the AWS or, or Azure or whatever. Um, they usually have some sort of security section. So, AWS has Trusted Advisor. Um, and Azure Security Center. Uh, and then there's other third-party tools that will actually hook into your cloud environment as well. But they'll basically go through and look at all your configs for everything and say, hey, you've got these databases over here that aren't running over TLS. They're just plain text. You should go fix those. Um, and they're really nice as well, because even if you know kind of what you're doing to a degree, it's really easy to miss things. Uh, it's really easy to kind of focus in one space and you're kind of wide open somewhere else. So uh, yeah, these can actually be really handy they also come up with uh, risk ratings for each of those things. So it's like, here's your critical things. These are the things that we really think you should do yesterday, uh, and you can kind of prioritize those. <coughs> other, uh, other tests, the likes of Dome 9, Dome 9 and the uh, Netflix Security Monkey, are point-and-click scans. So those will happen point in time. Here you go. Here's your evaluation right now. Um, so there's kind of a bit of difference there. And cloud and application monitoring. So this is more looking at how's your cloud infrastructure behaving and what kind of traffic is that seeing, and then how's your application behaving and what kind of traffic is that seeing. Uh, a lot of this comes down to, in my experience, is just auditing. We want to see when security events happen within an application. We want to store that somewhere. So we can go back and say, hey, why why has someone gone in and admin's gone in and changed this thing? You want to have that logged somewhere to uh, be able to say, oh, okay, it was Joe Blogs. Um, 
And these kind of tools, they're a bit of a, a, bit of a mishmash. Um, some of them, like the Apps Insights, is really good for just, this is the amount of traffic you're getting, this is the amount of uh, 404 requests you're getting, or 500 requests, or things like that. Um, whereas if you're actually building in stuff into your code base, then you could forward that to, say, an event hub in Azure, and pipe that through to Splunk, if you're using a, a scene. Um, and then you can start uh, tying in the analytics of what's happening in your application alongside maybe what's happening in your firewall logs or something like that. Uh, this is my one slide about operations. <laughs> <coughs> cool. So V3, which I think is second last slide. Uh, so we've added more to our pipeline. Starting to look a little bit more full across the board. We've got a couple more things that we're monitoring once things are into production. Um, yeah, it's starting to fill out a bit. And the final one is manual security testing. Now, there's a reason why I leave this one at the end, because I, I'm a pen tester. I do this uh, as part of my work. But I also think I've seen, I've done pen tests where the penetration test is kind of the core of the software, the secure software program. It's let's build some stuff, let's get this, the professionals to test it, let's fix those things, and then we know we're good. And I really just think that's way too late in the process to be thinking about that. You really should be thinking about that stuff from the get-go and then throughout the dev cycle, and then the penetration test or the bug bounty program or the code review or whichever kind of testing you like to go for, that's the tick of approval at the end that says, yes, we've done our due, due, due diligence, we've, we have successfully gone through and, fixed, uh, and, and written some secure code, we're going to get some professionals to go in there and thoroughly test it to make sure we're fine, but it's more of a check at the end rather than being, this is just going to be the one thing that we rely on. Often we see, particularly the, the, the worst applications we test, they build it, you test it, it's full of holes, they fix those specific holes, but there's, there's layers of issues. You can't, you can't get everything in one go. So, uh, yeah, I just, I just think it's kind of just that shift. Let's, let's get as much of the security testing as we can throughout the, the dev life, life cycle. Um, and that's the guy, the last one that sits right at the end. Uh, yeah. As I said, where possible, we want to bring stuff further down this end of the life cycle. Cool. And I guess my note is Google works for your team. Uh, depending where you guys are at, you might be looking at um, uh, IDE tools and or uh, what's a better one? Uh, infrastructure as code, for example. You're like, we're just not there yet. That's, that's completely off track for what we're doing. Um, I think you have to build out whatever works with your team and, and hopefully sort of improve, improve your processes over time. But hopefully you can start thinking about this is a particular thing that maybe we're not looking at. I wonder if we can build that into our DevOps pipeline and automate that so uh, we can make sure we've got our bases covered there. And the nice thing is once you've got that core pipeline that I talked about at the start, you can start sort of mixing and matching pieces together. Uh, a lot of this tooling is designed to just run this set of tests and then run these tests and so you can kind of plug things in as you need to. Cool. Just some last notes. Um, as I said, your pipeline might look entirely different. Uh, depending on whether you're building in the cloud or running locally, that's going to make things look quite different. Um, so hopefully some of this is relevant to you, but uh, hopefully at least there's some bits you can pull out. <coughs> As I mentioned at the start, if you find issues beyond beyond that kind of commit phase, if you find any issues that come up throughout the pipeline, those should be fed back in as tickets 
uh, into your, your project tracking software. Because you need some way of then informing the developers to say, hey, we need you to go and check out this bug or this, this fix kind of thing. Otherwise, it can kind of get lost. Uh, theoretically, if you do some reading into DevSecOps, they talk about it being more than just a set of tools. I've spoken about a lot about tooling today, uh, but is, there is this kind of whole philosophy that goes behind it as well that does talk a bit more about let's get those, those three different teams kind of working together under the same banner. Um, personally, we're not, we're not doing this at the moment, but I'd like to do this, is have a separate pipeline for testing new tooling. So say we want to add some dependency management uh, let's build a second pipeline and build that into there. When we kick off a build, it'll do our regular pipeline as we normally would, but we're going to do this one as well and start testing that. And once we decide that that's good to go, we'll build that into our regular pipeline. Personally, I'm doing it. These are my personal projects, so the pipelines are very different. Um, but I think that's I think that'd be a better way of going about it uh, if you're going to use it in in sort of commercial space. Um, if you're going to add tools to your pipeline. Uh, say you go down this route and you sort of build out a pipeline, make sure you tell your team. <laughs> Don't just put something in there and the next thing they're getting builds fail and they're like, what's going on? Like, I've, I've just made a small change. Uh, yeah, make sure you tell your team, what's the tool you've introduced? Where does it sit? Uh, what does it do? Like, what, and what benefit does it have? Why are we adding this extra thing? You're telling me there's another thing that I have to check for before I can get my job done. It's kind of frustrating as a dev, right? Um, so you need to tell people that, hey, we're, we're doing dependency management now because we've seen all these vulnerabilities in packages and we want to get rid of these. So for the next few weeks, we're going to have some issues where we're having to update packages all the time, but overall, we're going to build a more secure product at the end. And then you'll get some more behind from the dev team. Um, and yes, when choosing tools, uh, ideally pick stuff that does actually uh, fail to build. Um, I haven't got this from experience, but from what I've heard of others talking about it, they've tried tooling where it builds a report of some description. And they go, cool, report, that's great, let's put this over here and we're going to get to it. And then nothing happens. <laughs> it just sits there in someone's inbox and it doesn't actually action. The other stuff is actually built in the pipeline, it goes bang, there's an issue, you need to fix this before we can continue on, then it kind of gets fixed, or at least gets triaged at that point. We're going to fix it now, or we're going to fix that in the next release or something like that. Cool. Um, some resources that I use for this. I use a ton of resources as actually. I'd say the main one would be the uh, Sans DevOps toolchain. I saw a talk that was similar to this in ASA last year. I thought it was awesome. There's actually a heap of talks at ASACon last year about DevSecOps, which I thought was really cool. Um, but this one here I found to be the most useful. Uh, also, if you're interested in this stuff in general, the Secure Developer Podcast is run by the person who started SNCC, which is the package management tool that I showed you. Um, really interesting. I thought it was really good. Um, this is the, the this is the uh, that that sans toolchain thing. I have this poster in my room because well in my in my, in my study because that's what cool people do. Uh, but it's very useful. It will look very familiar if you've seen this talk. Um, very similar structure. But I'd recommend going and checking it out. On the back side, it's really cool. Unfortunately, mine's stuck on the wall, so I don't see this. Uh, but it's effectively a checklist of things that you should be checking. Uh, for security in an application. I think this one's a little bit more oriented towards web stuff, uh, but a lot of the stuff is, is um, applicable either way. Cool. That's it. Thank you, guys. That's my face.
Yeah, my contact details. Uh, feel free to get in touch. Uh, but yeah, thanks for listening. Any questions? Yeah, any questions? Apologize, I've got this. T- this is nerves or something. I got too much throat that's not going away. Um, Scott, one thing you sort of didn't mention. I'm saying that probably all very different. But like, if you're a small team, mm-hmm. like, what's the cost of a lot of those software solutions? Like, a lot of them open source and free. Or like you said that Burst uh, has got an enterprise version now. Like, is that horrendously expensive? Like, how how cheap can people buy into this? Um, both in particular, the enterprise version is quite expensive. Yeah. Um, it's per C license type thing, and that gets kind of expensive. Um, but both suite free, more manual, but you can get that for free. I'd say most of the tooling actually is free or cheap. The cost is less going to be in financial cost of setting it up in a lot of cases, but the time cost it takes to get these things set up. Um, because especially if you're building out from scratch, to actually set up a CI/CD pipeline is non-trivial, especially if you're doing it for the first time. Um, so yeah, there's definitely an investment in actually getting it set up, but then you gain those benefits the longer it's running sort of thing. Um, yeah, there are some paid tools that are in that list, uh, or a lot of them are bundled with, if you're already in the Azure stack, then some of the tools are available in there, so you're paying for it elsewhere. Um, yeah. I, I um, have messed around with my own personal projects having DevOps pipelines, and I don't pay a cent for any of those because I don't want to pay for anything. <laughs> so yeah, you can definitely do it cheap and free. What does Tap2 do? That must have software and stuff like that you guys do. Um, we work mostly in the sort of uh, middle end, I guess, uh, software development space. Um, full stack dev. Uh, uh, yeah, we've done a lot of work in government uh, recently, and we're doing a bit of a decent project um, in uh, private private sector as well. Um, mostly web applications. Uh, yeah. As a kind of answer. Is it like, what's the most common thing you come across that you can tell devs to don't stop doing that? Is it SQL injection or is it? You do, you do get some SQL injection, uh, but not as not not heaps. Um, I found a lot of stuff like SQL injection um, is uh, yeah maybe not. I don't I don't see tons of SQL injection. I see tons of cross site scripting. Obviously, that's more of a front end uh, web kind of land. Um, I see bits of uh, people don't realize that APIs need to be um, authenticated and authorized as well as the web pages. There seems to be this thing that like if you can't access the web page, then you just don't know the APIs there. <laughs> um, so the number of like open APIs I found is kind of kind of sad. Um, yeah, in Webland, there's a lot of stuff around session management as well. Um, people try to try to hand roll a bit too much stuff around authentication and session management. And it's really easy to get that stuff wrong. Um, so yeah, I guess another tip would be, where possible, if you got if you got a stack that you can leverage, like an authentication stack, try not to build it yourself if you can. If you can leverage an identity provider or something, then there's a good chance they're going to build that out better than, than you're going to hand roll it. Any other questions? Dan? What's the, what's the, like, the best version of what you're describing there that you've seen? Um, I actually did. Ironically, I went to I went to Melbourne last year to review um, a bank, one of their applications, uh, and they were doing this amazingly. They were doing full uh, DevSecOps. They were doing full automated releases. They were doing multiple releases per day, um, straight through to production. Uh, and yeah, absolutely everything to the nth degree had to be ticked off, approved, checked by the right people. If you're accessing, if you're modifying these particular files, 
they might be around authentication, so the security guy had to do a PR of that. Um, yeah, they were, they really opened my eyes, uh, those guys over there, that was really cool. Um, I've also heard talks of the likes of Slack, um, sort of talk of the security lady at Slack last year. Um, yeah. This, this bank though was amazing, I thought it was unreal. <laughs> Um, and obviously they're doing this at scale as well. Their team, this team of developers was probably about 40 strong. Um, so it wasn't just uh, a really small team, it was a reasonable sized team. Um, and they seem to make it work pretty well. So you can't say which bank? Oh, nah. It was a commercial agreement, so I probably shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, they did well, but yeah, I probably shouldn't say. Any more questions? Huh? Cool. Thank you for listening, guys.